everyone. Happy 2024, and I'm super glad to be back. This is Fortune's Wheel, of course, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Now, this one, to be honest, this one was a hard one to kind of pin down. This episode is meant, really, to bridge the narrative of the Byzantine mid-11th century with that which is happening in southern Italy. I promise. (laughs) These narrative threads will ultimately culminate, but it's going to require some further build-up to have the full effect that history, in my opinion, should offer us. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to throw a lot at you on this episode, so if it takes a couple listens... I hope you do yourself the favor. It was a lot to work out, and it was a lot to set up, and I I can only hope that I've done it justice. We'll return here to the legendary Robert Giscard, but we'll also talk about a specific birth of a child, a divorce, and the welcoming of a little brother who will forge his own legendary path in the region. And we'll wrap this episode up with what I find to be the most important piece of this string of episodes, which tie Giscard's Normans and the Eastern Roman Empire post-Manzikert. An alliance has been in the works for a long time, but it will once and for all be forged on this episode. So, without further ado, this is episode 109, and it's entitled the Norman Papal Alliance. Thank you so much for listening. I hope your 2024 is amazing. And I hope you enjoy the show. The last episode published, which was episode 108, entitled Cracks in the Bulwark, well, it had a poll attached to it. It's still up for the time at the time of this recording, so I'm curious if more of you want to chime in. Uh, it's always welcome. As I was polishing up this episode and readying it for recording, I just thought I'd pop over to see what the results of that poll were. So the question was basically about who was the biggest threat to the Eastern Roman Empire in the mid to late 11th century. Now, the options that you could choose from were Catholicism, Robert Giscard and the Normans, the Bulgars and Pechenegs, internal corruption, or the Seljuk Turks. I chose to I chose those to ask about because I mean they were in their own rights genuine threats to the remnants of the true Roman Empire. As of this recording, Catholicism, the Bulgars and Pechenegs, and internal corruption all stand at twelve and a half percent of the vote, respectively. And the Seljuks are understandably in the lead with sixty two and a half percent, especially coming off of that particular uh, string of episodes with Manzikert and whatnot. But for those doing the math, we still have one option 
without a single vote. Robert Guiscard and his Norman allies back in Italy, they didn't receive one vote. Now, believe me, I'm not judging anyone's vote, okay? Not at all. I'm on the learning uh, path just like you are. Those options were chosen for a reason. They all had a major play on the overall threat to the weakened empire back in Constantinople. You know, from the Great Schism of 1054, resulting in the rift between Eastern and Western Christianity, a rift that had already existed in many ways, but was made real and, you know, as close to official as you can make it when Pope Leo IX, uh, well, one of his cardinals on his behalf, excommunicated Patriarch Michael Serilarius. To the many groups of Bulgars and Turks on three of the empire's four sides, I mean, these options were, were again, they were purposefully chosen for, for good reason. Either way you slice it, Constantinople was in absolute dire straits as of the 1070s. I think we can all understand that at this point. But it's funny that the Normans didn't even get a single vote. It's funny because my research has shown me the threat posed by those pesky Normans, and it was a very real threat. What if I told you that Robert Guiscard was mere miles away from becoming Emperor Robert I of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, obviously, it didn't take place in the 1060s or 70s, but it's coming. Believe me, it's coming. It was just one more example of how dismal my personal history education was growing up. Not only had I never heard the name Robert Guiscard before starting this podcast, but I certainly never knew that a Frenchman nearly took the Roman crown way over in the Middle East. So what's the story there? How was it that around the same couple decades that one Norman took over the island kingdom of England, while another nearly did the same on the literal opposite side of Europe, well, over the course of the next several episodes, my sincere hope is I show you that exact story. I hope to tie in the goings-on we've been discussing in the previous few episodes with a continuation of what has been happening since we last left the Southern Normans way back on episode, if you can believe it, way back on episode 33, entitled The Rise of Giscard. Now, admittedly, we have popped in and out of Southern Italy since then, but we haven't actually focused on them since episode 33, if you can believe that. Now, honestly, I kind of miss those pesky French pony boys down there getting their suntans and eating olives and drinking plenty of wine. It's been a good 76 episodes. But everything is a prelude to the next thing. And knowing context of the 1070s is absolutely crucial. All of it plays into what Robert Giscard attempts to do and how the Eastern Romans react. So... Let's get started on that story. But let's get started with the birth of a baby, shall we? Everyone loves babies, right? This particular baby was a bouncing baby boy. Robert de Hauteful, or as we know him, Robert Giscard, and his wife, Alberata, were blessed with a baby boy whom they baptized Mark de Hauteful. 
possibly, says Georgios Theotokos in his biography, Bohemond of Toronto, Crusader and Conqueror, quote, because he was born at his father's castle of San Marco Argentano in Calabria, end quote. It's a possible reason for naming him Mark. Now, this next part is extra symbolism, which I kind of like, uh, but it's interesting nonetheless. Theotokos continues, quote, Yet the symbolism of that name is also palpable, given in honor of Mark the Evangelist, whose symbol was the winged lion, a figure of courage and monarchy throughout most of Europe, African and Asian cultures. For millennia, actually. The name Marcus, very popular in Italy, southern France, and Spain, around AD 1000, is also a masculine patronym of pre-Christian Roman origin that refers to Mars, the Roman god of war. End quote. Mark de Hauteville, Marcus in Latin, has symbolic ties to everyone from Mark from the Bible to the Roman god of war. Got it. However, there's something else about this baby. He was born rather um, large, like like abnormally large, actually. And as dads everywhere want to do, Robert had some fun at the little guy's expense because of it. Robert Giscard named the boy Buamundus Gigas. See, even in the ancient stories that were told around Robert Giscard's time, Gigas was just the the Latinized name for what we call giant. It's most likely where we got the word gigantic, gigas, right? But Buamundus was a specific giant, the name of a specific giant. So he names his son Buamundus Gigas. So a little lighthearted teasing led to quite a powerful name that would serve this little boy well throughout his life. This little boy, again, Mark de Hauteville, would forever be known as Bohemond. Now, so exact, so the exact year of this birth is unfortunately lost to history. We know that Robert Giscard married Alborada in 1050, and they had a papal-sanctioned divorce in 1058, which we'll get to shortly. So that's the only range historians have to go on. I mean, that's a big range, eight years, right? There have yet to be any solid references other than those two dates, as far as my research has been able to unearth, and my guess has to do with that divorce. But, again, just hang on to that divorce just for a moment here. Let's switch to Robert Giscard's youngest brother, you know, the baby of the massive Hopeville brood that invaded southern Italy in the 11th century. Roger de Hopeville was his name. The great historian John Julius Norwich in his book, The Other Conquest, in my opinion, said it best, quote, to the population of South Italy, the progeny of old Tancred de Hauteville must have seemed interminable, end quote. Now, the good news was that Roger, again, the baby of the brood, was the last Tancred-born Hauteville to make his way south. At the time, which was inside some time inside of that eight-year range of the time of Bohemond's birth, in the year 1057 specifically, Roger was a sprightly 26 years old. But Norwich writes, quote, Though he was the youngest of the Hautevilles, 
he was soon to prove himself a match for any, end quote. Think about that for a moment. The likes of a warrior named William Ironarm, <laughs> who once cleaved a man nearly in half on the battlefield, winning the day, right? There's one, two powerful Norman leaders in southern Italy named Drogo and Humphrey. Humphrey, remember, even captured the Pope and the clever and cunning duke named Robert Guiscard, who had brought Calabria and Apulia to heel by deceit, bribery, and destruction, and who was still very much in the middle of his own story here. And little Roger would grow to stand as strong, if not stronger, depending on the source, than any of them? Really? (laughs) We've touched on this briefly already in the past episodes, but we know that Roger and Robert's relationship wasn't exactly the best. It was slightly better than, say, Robert's relationship with his own big brothers, Drogo and Humphrey. But the thing about the Hopevilles was that it was a band of brothers who forced each other to prove their worth. Time and time again, at every turn, it seemed to be that. No one rode anyone else's coattails, uh, at least too far, which, if you ask me, was why the Hopevilles survived and thrived in such a hostile situation for so long. Nothing was given for free to the boys who came south. In fact, Robert Giscard was sent on a fool's errand by his older brother in a bid to get the pesky little brother killed. Luckily for Robert, he was crafty enough to bring a whole hostile Greek section of Italy under his control and return it to the older brother. It was almost like a spit in the face, if you ask me. Now, Roger would have a similar experience with Robert Giscard. Throughout 1057, Robert Giscard left Roger in charge of various areas when he had to leave for, you know, a variety of reasons. At the time, Robert was the Count of Apulia and the Count of Calabria. So he's off keeping keeping order, basically. And every time he would leave, he would trust his younger brother, Roger. And it was a little bit of a test. So Norwich writes, uh, Robert looked at Roger as quote-unquote an apt pupil, right? So there was just something special about little Roger here, 26 years old, but gifts like that can put a target on your back, right? So brother or not, Roger had to beware. And it didn't help that when Robert went into Calabria to quell widespread unrest, Roger was sent for to come to Robert's aid. Yeah, and when Rob, excuse me, when Roger arrived, it wasn't just that he bolstered Robert's lines with fresh soldiers. No, 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 no. It was that Roger kind of saved Robert's life while there. Now remember, Robert Giscard was the undisputed leader of the Southern Normans. Period. To be upstaged by his little brother was a black eye on his reputation. At least in his eyes, it was. And also remember that Robert Giscard wasn't the easiest guy to get along with either. So by early 1058, Roger stormed out of Robert's court. As Norwich writes, quote, One of the advantages of, of his late arrival in the peninsula was that he had plenty of brothers already established to whom he could turn. And he now accepted the invitation of William de Hauteville, Count of the Principate who in the four years since his arrival in Italy had captured nearly all of the territory 
of Lombard-run Salerno, south of the city itself, and who had sent Roger a message offering him, William de Hauteville sent his little brother Roger a message offering him an equal share of all that he possessed, end quote. Yeah, so don't forget, the Hopeville brood was so big that old Papa Tancred ran out of names, apparently, and reused the name William. This was obviously not the same William as the second oldest son, who became known as William Ironarm, and who was the first Hopeville boy to take the lead down in southern Italy. It's a different William altogether. So this is how Robert and Roger began their relationship in southern Italy. On and off, hot and cold. Not a great start, but... That's just how the Hopevilles did things, apparently. And again, I maintain that that was exactly why the Normans were so successful in Italy. Steel sharpened steel, right? Well, that and what William of Apulia once wrote when referring to how news of Norman success down in the peninsula was presented to young Normans back in Normandy. He says, quote, They talked of the fertility of Apulia and of the cowardice of those who lived there. They advised them to carry with them only what was necessary for the journey, for they promised that once there, they would find a wise patron, under whose leadership they would gain an easy victory over the Greeks. All of them were greedy for gain. End quote. Yeah. So there was that too. Now, as we know, southern Italy throughout the 11th century underwent many shifts in the whole power structure. Just to clarify, early on it was overrun by Byzantine influence, especially when the likes of George Maniakis arrived in the city of Bari and led a few campaigns pushing the Saracens, or as we call Muslims in Sicily, the Saracens, out of the toe of the boot and then pushed them further across the strait into Sicily. But there was also a large presence of Franco-Germanic Lombards who had settled across Italy centuries earlier. Then there was the arrival of the Normans, and we find southern Italy overrun by those three powers, the Lombards, the Byzantines, and the Normans, all vying for superiority. Now, by mid-century, Byzantine influence was locked down to the port city of Bari, while the Normans had quickly taken control of the bottom of the peninsula, even earning the support of the Pope after the Battle of Civitate in 1053 still at odds much of the time with Lombard power centers, but also finding a steady equilibrium with them. Now, by 1058, Robert Guiscard was the supreme leader of southern Italy's disparate principalities, largely dominated by Normans, but also a good number of Lombard princes who had made the moves to stay in power during the Norman rise. So, one year after young Roger de Hauteville arrived, bickered with his older brother Robert, found refuge with another older brother, and then bailed Robert out, earning himself a place back in Robert Giscott's court, well, the year 1058 would bring another major change to the power structure. Robert Giscard was then married to a Lombard woman named Alborada, as we mentioned. That's Bohemond's mother. But Alborada wasn't the most valuable connection someone as powerful as Giscard deserved, at least when looking at the overall power structure. Now, it was great when Robert Giscard was still younger, still under the, the, uh, the leadership of his older brothers Drogo and, and Humphrey, but now he was the undisputed leader. 
and Alborada was not very high on the status as it was. So remember, these were also the days when marriage was generally an objective alliance, not some romantic connection or statement. Also remember, please, that I said generally, as we will soon learn of a couple outliers to that rule. So just know that there are outliers. However, in this case with Robert Giscard, he was already a tough guy to to get to know, let alone get along with. He was notoriously he was notoriously generous to his soldiers, but he could also rule with an iron fist, you know, with the best of them. Anyway, Alborada seemed a fine wife for the roar, for the warrior Robert Giscard, but for Duke Robert Giscard, which he would become soon, he had earned a better fit. And there was no better fit for Robert Giscard than the daughter of the most powerful Lombard around, Prince Guillemar IV of Salerno. Now that's a name that may sound familiar from earlier episodes. Just as news arrived in Robert Giscard's court of a massive famine in Calabria, the same we mentioned so many episodes ago, a devastating famine killing untold thousands of people, a famine that was just like the one that crippled Northumbria a decade in Calabria's future, one caused by Norman-driven destruction of the landscape and its bounties all in the name of oppressing a people into submission, right? Just as news of the Calabrian calamity made, made it to Robert, an offer also arrived. An offer from Prince Guillemar IV of Salerno. And that offer was, as you probably figured out, was a marriage proposal. See, just, decades, just a decade earlier, before Robert even arrived in Italy, his older brother and one-time leader of the Southern Romans, Drogo de Hauteville, had married Prince Guillemar's the fourth's eldest daughter. So there's already a Hopeville Prince Guillemar the fourth connection here. In the na- excuse me, in the time between Drogo's death and 1058, Prince Guillemar the fourth was becoming increasing, increasingly desperate to make a new alliance with his really powerful now Norman neighbors. And in those intervening years, Prince Guillemar IV died, and his son, Gisolf II, had taken over. Clearly the better option, Prince Guillemar's youngest daughter, therefore Gisolf II's sister, named Sigilgeta, was up against one major obstacle with regards to marrying Giscard. Robert Giscard, as you know, was already married with children, mind you. The marriage would serve Giscard far better, that of uh, the marriage with Sikulgeta. It would serve him far better than the current one was serving him, the one with Alborada. So he pursued this alliance with vigor. The problem arose when his attention was drawn to Calabria, when they all rose in rebellion against him because of that same famine. He could not juggle both things at once. So he made the fateful decision to pull in his younger brother, Roger, back into the fold, asking the now 27-year-old to head to Calabria to put down the uprisings. Norwich writes in his book, The Other Conquest, quote, 
in so wild and mountainous a country, with its inhabitants so restless and its linen and its lines of communication so slender, no prince, however strong, could maintain his domination single-handedly. Roger seized his chance. Down the coast he rode at the head of all the soldiers he could muster. Whether he was able to do anything to alleviate the hardships of his future subjects is not recorded. We do not, we do not even know whether he tried very hard. Nor do the chroniclers tell us what action he took against the insurgents. But they never mention the Calabrian insurrection again. End quote. Seems to me like Roger de Hopeville was, well, he was just a chip off the old Hopeville block. And as thanks, Giscard offered Roger half of Calabria in return. And Giscard didn't stiff his brother either. It was a genuine and honest transaction. Oh, wait, no, no, that's right. Giscard told him he was getting him half of Calabria, but in essence, he only truly officially, after they had parted ways, of course, hugging and happy about the deal, Roger unaware, Giscard only really left Roger as Count of the City of Reggio. It's the very tip across the strait from Sicily. That's all in essence. So in name, Giscard gave Roger the Count of Calabria title or at least half of it, they would share it. But in reality, he only truly had control over the very tip of the boot. Either way, with Roger handling the Calabrian situation, Robert Giscard was available to pursue this marriage alliance once again. Now, as far as I can tell, there's no specific proof of anything, but all of a sudden, the records indicate that Robert Giscard was actually, conveniently, too closely related to his wife, Alberata, a crime they called consanguinity. This was exactly what was needed to stay in good standing with the church. So he pursued the divorce from Alberata first. The problem was his beloved son, Mark, or as we know him, Bohemond, was now a bastard and no longer his direct heir. Now, that's a very important uh, piece of Bohemond's story. However, the boon to his power and influence was apparently worth it. In 1058, Robert Giscard married a lady named Sicilgeta, daughter of Prince Guillemar IV of Salerno and sister to the current Prince Gisolf II of Salerno. Also, I should add that Sicilgeta was the younger sister to Robert's own brother Drogo's former wife. The connections never cease, it seems like. Now, Norwich does say this about it, quote, Gisolf does not appear to have been any too keen on the idea. He had always hated the Normans, who had already shorn him of almost all he possessed, end quote. He also quoted William of Apulia when saying that Gisolf II of Salerno and other Lombard leaders thought those southern Normans were just, quote unquote, a savage, barbarous, and abominable race. The real reason this marriage alliance went through was because of a few other things happening in 1058, though. See, Pope Stephen just died, right? And Pope Stephen, though friendly enough to the Normans, was the real force protecting 
the southern Lombard princes against the Normans in recent years. With that gone, Gisolf II of Salerno, Lombard, mind you, was in desperate need of protection against his neighbors, Richard of Capua and William the Younger de Hauteville. Gisolf, in exchange for his consent, required Robert Guiscard to do something about both Capua and the younger William, his younger brother. Now, Guiscard was already unhappy with his little brother William because he helped out Roger the year before, so he was happy to bring him to heel, and Capua was nothing. Gisolf was happy, and the marriage went on. It wasn't a simple set of circumstances, but in 1058, Robert Guiscard married Sicilgeta, pulling in the Norman presence in Apulia and Calabria with the mighty principality of Salerno, while also booting Bohemond out of the family will. But Robert Guiscard gained, I mean, by all accounts, a magnificent woman. Norwich writes, quote, In her, we come face to face with the closest approximation history has ever dared to produce of a Valkyrie, a woman of immense build and colossal physical strength. She was to prove a perfect wife for Robert. And from the day of their wedding to that of his death, she scarcely ever left her husband's side, least of all in battle, one of her favorite occupations. End quote. Yeah. Take that, Matilda of Flanders. Edward Gibbon says that Anna Komneni herself was, imp- was impressed by this woman as well. Now, Anna Komneni is a person we will get to uh, soon enough. She is the daughter of a future Byzantine emperor. Yes, I'm trying to be a little vague about all this. Um, but she becomes a chronicler and gives us one of the best contemporary accounts of of the time, the mid to late 11th century and into the early uh, 12th century. So she's kind of a, a juggernaut herself. Well, she quote, according to Edward Gibbon, she quote, admired with some degree of terror, Sicilgeta's masculine virtues, end quote. Now, word spread about Sicilgeta over the ensuing years, and rightfully so. Sicilgeta, again, was a magnificent presence and was a two-sided coin breaking the mold for the 11th century lady. At once, she was an incredibly beautiful woman with the fierce heart of a warrior, and her pedigree was probably the jewel in the crown as far as Robert Guiscard was concerned. As William of Apulia wrote, quote, This alliance with so noble a family lent new brilliance to Robert's already celebrated name. Those who had heretofore obeyed him only through compulsion now did so out of respect for the ancient law, remembering that the Lombard race had long been subject to the ancestors of Sicilgeta, end quote. So what this did, once again, solidifying the bonds between the invading Normans and the established Lombard ruling elite in southern Italy, and Sicilgeta, when it's all said and done, would bear Robert ten children, Well, as you know, 10 that we know of, none of them, however, would live up to their father's legacy. They would all play their own major and minor roles in the politics of the region, but those born to Sicilgeta would all fall short of their parents in the end. Now, as for Bohemond, born again to Alborada, 
Well, Bohemond would be an entirely different story. Now, I want to do a quick catch-up on papal politics before we wrap this episode up. I told you this episode was hard to pin down, so hopefully we can, we're following. We're doing all right. Now, to set the scene, it's now 1059, and Pope Benedict X was in power. He was far more powerful and respected than his namesake predecessor, Benedict IX, a few years earlier, who was really a colossal failure in nearly every way. I mean, the guy wore the funny hat three separate times and botched every single attempt. The problem for Benedict X was that he was on opposing sides with a certain powerful cardinal, a man you might remember, a man who we first met advising his friend, Pope Leo IX. This man's name was Hildebrand. Now, Cardinal Hildebrand had been playing papal politics with nearly everyone since he first arrived in Rome along with Pope Leo IX a decade earlier. He had held the bishopric of Ostia, which was Rome's major port city since ancient times, and he learned a great deal about Roman economics while serving there. Now, since then, he'd served as papal ambassador for numerous popes, German-backed or not, until he held the second highest position in Rome, that of cardinal. Now, Hildebrand was also quite close to a family that our supporting listeners were introduced to in our latest Patreon episode, an episode entitled Duke Bonifacio of Canossa. Now, this connection would become pivotal to papal politics in the coming decades, and I mean pivotal. But for now, it seemed that this same family had one of its own on the papal throne. This family could claim Pope Stephen IX, as their own, and he served from 1057 to 1058. Pope Stephen IX had an incredibly close confidant and ally in Cardinal Hildebrand because of that familial connection. Again, Hildebrand was friends with Stephen IX's family. Now, Hildebrand helped boost him to the position in the first place. In 1058, just a year earlier than this, Hildebrand was on a trip to a very hostile Germany. Hildebrand was well known as being uh, in opposition to the German crown's choice for Pope. Well, when he was in a hostile Germany, Stephen became sick and on his deathbed decreed that no papal election would occur until Hildebrand himself returned to oversee the process. Now, the machinations of the German court inside Rome, they never ceased regardless how old its king was, and upon Stephen IX's death, moved quickly, and they elevated Benedict X to the papacy before Hildebrand had even heard the news of Stephen's passing. When Hildebrand returned and realized what had happened in his absence, despite the direct orders of a dying pope, Hildebrand was livid. Hildebrand, simply put, was not a man to be trifled with. It was Cardinal Hildebrand in 1059 who schmoozed the likes of Richard of Capua in order to gain Norman mercenaries to the service of those who opposed the German-backed anti-pope Benedict X. Faced with an early death, or I suppose worse, excommunication, Hildebrand rallied support to dethrone Benedict X, kicking off what Norwich called, quote-unquote, the era of Norman papal friendship. 
though the Battle of Civitate a few years earlier was the, was the real beginning of that tenuous alliance. As Norman allies destroyed the region of Galeria, which was harboring the Pope at the time behind well-defended walls, Benedict X was soon handed over, defrocked, and imprisoned back in Rome. The reign of another German-backed Pope came to another humiliating end. The next thing to deal with was who was going to become Pope now that Benedict X was out. At the time, if left to their own devices and not interfered with by German kings up north, popes were chosen by the entire clergy as well as Roman noblemen. Yeah, the Roman nobility had a say in who was pope. Because again, if you wonder why that is, though the pope is over the entire church, the Catholic church, in many ways, it's the Roman people. The pope is the bishop of Rome. So... That's kind of the tie in there. This had gone back centuries, since the year 824, this process. Over the years, if a Holy Roman Emperor existed, then it came to needing the approval of the Emperor on top of that election. Now, by the late 900s, it fell on the German king, Emperor or not. There was not, in 1059, a Holy Roman Emperor. So it was... By tradition, up to King Henry IV to approve of the new pope's election, whoever that might be. As with everything in the 11th century, it seems there was a catch. See, Henry IV was still a child and not yet in his majority. So, I mean, what's a guy like Hildebrand to think in that case? Hildebrand was clearly anti-German in his thoughts about who should be pope. So he had already schemed through a plan, and it began with a question. Why in the world should he continue to follow a flawed and corrupted ritual of papal election that was created way back in the early 800s? Well, if it was up to Hildebrand, no one would. Now, Remember, Benedict X was still in jail and defrocked and no longer Benedict X. He wasn't a pope anymore. And with Rome in a state of stunned paralysis, and that's genuinely how it's described in many, many ways. With Rome in a stunned state of paralysis, a child on the throne of Germany and a powerful Tuscan family at his back. And I should mention the strengthened alliance between southern Normans and his allies in the Catholic Church. With all of that, Hildebrand decided it was time for a change, a major change. But first thing was first. With the wind at his back and no German contender in sight, he helped elevate and elect Pope Nicholas II to the papal throne. Norwich writes of the culmination of Hildebrand's plan. Quote, In April 1059, Pope Nicholas held a synod at the Lateran. And there, in the presence of 113 bishops, and with Hildebrand as always by his side, he promulgated the decree which, with one or two later amendments, continues to relegate papal elections to the present day. For the first time, the responsibility for electing a new pope was placed squarely on the cardinals. Only after a pontiff had been elected was the assent of the rest of the clergy and people to be sought. The meaning was plain. In the future, 
the church would run its own affairs and take orders from no one. End quote. Now that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Now in my own lifetime, there have been three popes. Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and of course now at this recording we have Pope Francis. Each of them have been elected in a secretive process where all the cardinals lock themselves away and the world awaits the smoke to change colors, basically, right? The thing is, I'm not even Catholic. It just shows you how ubiquitous the sacred process of choosing a pope has become. It's, to me, it's a fascinating tradition. The College of Cardinals, as it came to be known, was begun in 1059 by Pope Nicholas II. And make no mistake, Cardinal Hildebrand was right there orchestrating it all from the wings. Norwich says, quote, To both the empire and the nobility of Rome, it amounted to a slap in the face, however diplomatically delivered, end quote. Even Norwich considers it a quote-unquote brave decision to carry out such a plan, such an unarguably bold and subversive plan to undermine two-plus centuries of tradition. It effectively broke the entire papacy from the Holy Roman Empire, cleaving the power structures that had grown between them in two. And Hildebrand would never have done it without one ace in his pocket, the Normans. And though the Southern Normans in general, meaning those under Richard of Capua or overall under Robert Guiscard, Though they were on Hildebrand's side, remember, he was Leo IX's bestie back in 1053 when Leo was taken hostage by Humphrey de Hopeville, Robert Guiscard by his brother's side there, mind you. These guys, they all knew each other. Robert Guiscard, Cardinal Hildebrand, their relationship went back six years at this point. So in 1059, when Hildebrand was able to get those Norman knights to support the overthrow of Benedict X, don't forget that Robert Giscard was certainly well aware of it and most likely approved of it. How many Normans were needed to cow an entire Roman nobility, the German court, and allow the schism to rupture between the church and the Holy Roman Empire? It took a mere 300 Normans to do that. 300 Normans was what allowed Hildebrand to overhaul the Catholic Church. That was the power of the Norman knight. Norwich writes, quote, Not even Hildebrand would have dared to take the risk but for the Normans. End quote. So here we end this episode. We end with a return to our old friend Robert Guiscard, the arrival of Robert's youngest brother, Roger de Hauteville, in southern Italy. And with Cardinal Hildebrand, well, <laughs> completely imploding the source of power and legit legitimacy for the Holy Roman Emperor, presumably the boy king at the time, Henry IV, in a few years. On the next episode, we see what else Hildebrand can do with a few Norman knights, as well as what Robert Giscard decides to do next, because, I mean, a man like Giscard was rarely, if ever, willing to put his feet up and rest on his laurels. Now, he had so much, so much more to accomplish before he hung it up. And he had another brother there to help him now, even if he was reluctant to, to accept the help. 
Hildebrand's going to be working in the background of the next couple episodes, but make no mistake, he's working all the same because his story is also about to blow up as well. But I want to leave us with a rather lengthy passage from John Julius Norwich's book, The Other Conquest. These words that he quotes, these are, these are the supposed words of Robert Guiscard himself as he accepted the title of Duke from Pope Nicholas II in 1059 thus solidifying the Norman Papal Alliance that will run the show in the Mediterranean for the next few decades, all the way up to the First Crusade. Please listen closely to these words. I, Robert, by the grace of God and of St. Peter, Duke of Apulia and of Calabria, and if either aid me, future Duke of Sicily, shall be from this time forth faithful to the Roman Church, and to you, Pope Nicholas, my Lord. Never shall I party to a conspiracy or undertaking by which your life might be taken, your body injured, or your liberty removed. Nor shall I reveal to any man any secret which you may confide to me, pledging me to keep it, lest this should cause you harm. Everywhere and against all adversaries I shall remain, in so far as it is in my power to be so, the ally of the Holy Roman Church, that she may preserve and acquire the revenues and domains of St. Peter. I shall afford to you all assistance that may be necessary that you may occupy, in all honor and security, the papal throne in Rome. As for the territories of St. Peter, and of those of the principality, referring to Benevento here, I shall not attempt to invade them or even to ravage them without the express permission of yourself or your successors, clothed with the honors of the blessed Peter. I shall conscientiously pay every year to the Roman Church the agreed rent for the territories of St. Peter, which I do or shall possess. I shall surrender to you the churches, which are at present in my hands, with all their property, and shall maintain that in their obedience to the Holy Roman Church. Should you or any of your successors depart this life before me, I shall, having taken the advice of the foremost cardinals, as of the clergy and laity of Rome, work to ensure that the Pope shall be elected and installed according to the honor due to St. Peter. I shall faithfully observe with regard both to the Roman Church and to yourself, the obligations which I have just undertaken, and shall do likewise with regard to your successors who will ascend to the honor of the blessed Peter and who will confirm me in the investiture which you have performed. So help me God and his holy gospels. End quote. So, quite a mouthful. That may very well have been the oath taken by Robert Giscard 1,000 years ago. However, Richard of Capua's oath was most likely very similar to this one, because as Robert Guiscard accepted the title of Duke, at the same time, Richard also was given new title. Nicholas II went back to Rome. Guiscard immediately left to join the siege of the rebellious Calabrian city of Cariati, and Richard went home, all quite satisfied. But the Lombard prince, Gisolf II of Salerno, who had been pushing the German-backed popes over the previous years to once and for all 
push these Normans out of southern Italy, well, those dreams were dashed at this point, and he couldn't have taken the news well at all. Couple this with the Roman nobility, who were already seething from the loss of power when the College of Cardinals took over the papal election process, while the Pope and the Normans may have been in ultimate power in southern Italy, but there was still a roiling and boiling underbelly that wanted to see them all overthrown. And at the end of all this was the desperate final hope that Constantinople might still make a push and regain their southern Italian territories. Now that the Normans had spiritual and political papal support and the papacy had the muscle of the Normans behind them, it was a bad day for Lombards. But it was also a bad day for Greeks and Roman nobility all around. The Papal-Norman alliance at this point in 1059, it was very, very real. And it would catapult the entire peninsula along with the island of Sicily into the late Middle Ages. And just to plant a little seed for future episodes here, because I promise this will help explain a few things later, Norwich writes, quote, It was lucky that King Henry IV of Germany, who was still in his minority, it was lucky that King Henry IV was still a child. Had he been a few years older, he would never have taken such treatment lying down. As it was, the Pope's name was thenceforth ostentatiously omitted from the intercessions in all the imperial chapels and churches. But we may wonder whether Nicholas or Hildebrand greatly cared. End quote. Until next time.